How many would like for the Lord to encounter you this morning with His Word? Who wants to have an Emmaus Road experience where Jesus speaks to you and His Word burns inside of your heart and it marks you? Well, let's ask Him to do that. Father, we come to you and we're asking you that your Holy Spirit, who is the teacher of the church, would come. Take your living words, plant them inside of our heart and our soul, and mark us, Lord, with your words. Let them be deeply implanted. We say that we receive your word with a spirit of humility. Let it be engrafted inside of us and let it grow and produce much fruit for your glory in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would let no one escape let nobody escape here without being encountered by your spirit and your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. So, when I was going to Southeastern, right after the Civil War was over, <laughs> after my freshman year, um, I lived in Connecticut then. And um, that summer, I got the, what I thought was the ultimate summer job. I was working at Carvel Ice Cream. And so part of the deal was we could get as much free ice cream as we wanted to eat. Now, we couldn't carry away gallons to the house. But while we were there, we could eat as much ice cream as we wanted. Um, they had the, the cakes, all that stuff. And all of the mistakes during the day, you know, they make mistakes, right? put the wrong thing on there or flops over, whatever. Put that in the freezer. So by the end of the day, there's usually a lot of mistakes that are really good. Um, so we could take all of those home every day as well. And in my former life, I loved ice cream. So now I don't eat it, but I still think about it sometimes. But in that day, um, chocolate ice cream was like my thing. I loved it. That was my comfort food extraordinaire. Here's what I found, though. Working at Carvel, having as much ice cream as I wanted and being able to bring home all of the ice cream, basically our freezer at the house was always stocked with ice cream to where I couldn't bring anymore because my family wouldn't eat enough of it. Here's what happened. I began to, since I was working with that ice cream all day long, serving it to people, making the cakes, doing all the stuff that you do at an ice cream store, it began to just become common to me, and I actually stopped eating it for the last two months that I worked there because I was kind of sick of it. That seems crazy to me now, what I would give for some Carvel chocolate ice cream, but that's a splurge night. Um, but you know, we're in danger sometimes, and I speak for myself, going to two different Bible colleges and being in ministry. We deal with truths that are profound and holy and transformative and glorious so much that I think our danger is that we get used to it. And it doesn't strike our hearts anymore in real depth and stir up the affections and the passions that are appropriate for the things that we're talking about. I want to talk about communion this morning. We're going to receive it at the end of the service. This is one of those subjects when we talk about the death of Jesus and the power of his blood, that we sing about it, we talk about it, we read about it, and we need to plead with God. This is what I do. I'm not, I'm not pointing the finger at anybody. This is what I do. I plead with God 
to give me the right heart to respond with the passion and the affections that are worthy of what I'm talking about. I want to try to help us this morning. I don't, I don't remember a time in the 10 years of Heart of the Father where we've actually had a whole service where we taught about the Lord's Supper or communion. And so we're going to go there this morning. My goal is for our hearts to be stirred and raised to a higher level in our appreciation, in our faith, in what we're doing when we take the Lord's Supper. This is holy. This is the peak of holiness, what Jesus did on the cross. It's amazing. You know, there were days in the church, in the history of the church, where people died because of what they believed and practiced about the Lord's Supper. In the Reformation, in the 1550s, England, Queen Mary, there were 288 people over just a couple-year period in England that she had burned at the stake because of what their beliefs were about the Lord's Supper and how they practiced it. When I see that, I wonder to myself, what truths of Scripture are so precious and so real and so alive inside of me that I would be burned at the stake for them. Forty-five of those people that were burned at the stake were women. Five of them were children. What truth of Scripture, if, if there's any, I'm, I'm going to submit to you, this would be one of those truths, because this is at the core of our entire faith in Jesus Christ, what he did on the cross. There's two ordinances in the church that Jesus commanded us to keep. What are they? Baptism. Okay, baptism is where we go under the water. It's an ordinance, which means that Jesus is telling us to act out a living parable of what's actually happened in the gospel. And in baptism, we're owning Jesus publicly, and we're saying, my old life, everything that it was, my whole old twisted self is now going down under the water into death. And when I come up, I have a new life now. I have a new master. It's not me as the captain of my ship anymore. Now he calls the shots. I have a new life. He's breathed his spirit inside of me. He's put his heart inside of me, his new heart. Do you know if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have a new heart that wants to do what God wants you to do? That's a game changer. That's a total game changer. I will write my laws upon their heart, and I will cause them to walk in my ways. That's what Ezekiel said in Ezekiel 36. He's going to cause you to walk in his ways. I still marvel. It's a total game changer. Like, in your heart, your heart, whatever you may have been taught, the Bible teaches that in the new covenant, because of the blood of Jesus, the heart that's inside of you wants to do what God wants you to do. Yeah, you've still got flesh. Yeah, you've still got a mind. Yeah, you've still got the world. You've still got the devil. But Jesus conquered those on the cross, too. The reality is... It's incredible. I mean, what he did, what we celebrate when we take communion is phenomenal. So the second ordinance past baptism is 
the Lord's Supper. So there's three basic titles that go around in the body of Christ of what we, how we classify or call what the phrases that we call this ordinance. So one of them is the Lord's Supper. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we're going to start here. I want to do a little bit of teaching, and then we'll see how far it goes before I start yelling. I don't know. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Let's read verses 23 to 26 to start out here. We'll just start here. We're going to go back and read larger portions of this chapter a little bit later. Verse 23, Paul speaking. He says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. So what does it mean when he says, I received it from the Lord? He got it from direct revelation from Jesus. The Last Supper is portrayed in all four of the Gospels in some different ways. But Paul got his revelation probably when he was hiding out in Arabia for those 14 years and Jesus was giving to him the gospel. He says, the gospel that I received, I didn't receive it from men. I didn't get it from the apostles in Jerusalem. I got it from a direct revelation of Jesus Christ who gave it to me. So wouldn't that be cool if the resurrected Christ came to you and said, listen, I want to talk to you about what communion means. I'm going to tell you what happened in that upper room, and I'm going to tell you the deeper meaning of it and how you should receive it. Who would want to hear that? Okay, that's what we have right here. What I received from the Lord, that which also I delivered to you. First Corinthians, almost all scholars would agree, was written before any of the four Gospels. So this was actually the first written scripture that describes the Lord's Supper here in First Corinthians chapter 11. Powerful stuff. Paul also brings in some details that the Gospel stories don't have for us to understand as believers. Yes, Lord. Okay, I also delivered. This is verse 23. I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So, the three ways that the Lord's Supper is described, one of them is in verse 24. It says, And when he had given thanks, that is where Eucharist comes from. Catholic Church. Eastern Orthodox Church talk about Eucharist a lot. This, this is just trying to give you a background of why there's different names. So the Greek word there for give thanks is eucharisteo, and that's where Eucharist comes, give thanks. Okay, so that's where Eucharist comes. Now you know a fact that you probably never need again, but you know that now. Lord's Supper is back up in verse 20, which we'll read later, but it says, therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. Basically, he's telling them, you think that's what you're doing, but you're not really doing it, and that's really significant because we're going to see why he said that later. But it's the Lord's Supper because Jesus instituted it on the Passover, right? When he gathered together his followers on that night, he told them, go and prepare the Passover meal, right? We're going to eat it together, and inside of the Passover meal itself, which is hugely significant, he instituted what we call the Lord's Supper, 
We'll talk about that in just a minute as well. The other name that we call it, which is my favorite, is back in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. If you look there, verses 16 and 17. And it is the word communion, which isn't probably in most of your translations unless you have a King James or a New King James, in which case it is. But verse 16 of chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians says, Is this is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ, which King James again and New King James said, a communion in the blood of Christ, and is not the bread which we break a communion in the body of Christ, so sharing. I like the word communion, and that's the word that I typically default to because it has the idea that I think is at the very core of what this ordinance is about. That is oneness. This ordinance is about oneness. It's about oneness with Jesus and his people, and that's usually where we leave it. We're going to see that. But it's also hugely and so importantly about the oneness of his people with each other. This is the ordinance that binds us together in love. This is the ordinance that strengthens our union together. We're partaking of a common life. We're partaking of a common blood. We have the same life within us because of what Jesus has done. This ordinance speaks of our oneness and the importance of it. It's all important because the life of Jesus that he gives us doesn't just come from heaven straight to us. How many know that? It also comes to us horizontally. You can never be the believer that Jesus created you to be apart from brothers and sisters in Christ. I hate to tell you that. I know that goes against all American comfort zones and theology, but it's true. Because your brothers and sisters have a grace that you don't have, and you need it, just like I need yours. And this ordinance illustrates that. It's a demonstration. So the two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, it proclaims the oneness of his body. It also proclaims his oneness with us in his life and death and resurrection. All right? So I say that communion is an ordinance about oneness. So let's look at that. It's two phases of oneness. It's two aspects of oneness. It is our living connection with Jesus in the sacrifice. I like those passages and those verses in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, and 17 where it's translated different ways. King James communion, okay? We use that, and that really doesn't mean a lot to us, but that has the idea of oneness. My translation, New American Standard, says um, sharing with ESV and NIV say participation with. These are active words. I want you to get this. So God's intent when we receive communion in the Lord's Supper is not just to go, okay, here we're doing this because this is what we're supposed to do. He said to do it, so we're doing it. No, he wants an active participation of our heart. And when we do that, something happens. The Greek word there is koinonia. How many have heard that word before? If you haven't, you will, because I'll keep putting it out there. It is a huge word in the New Testament. We don't know exactly how they operated everything in the book of Acts in the early church, but we do know this. They were keen on hearing the teaching of the apostles, so the Word of God was central. They gathered together for prayer constantly, so we know that prayer was central. They also gathered together to break bread, which means what? what we're talking about this morning. 
They gather together regularly to break bread. So if you only had four things that you said you have to have as essentials when the Holy Spirit is poured out in the early church, would you include the Lord's Supper in that list of four? In the book of Acts, it's listed, and they get together. They often combined it with a regular meal. But when they talked about breaking bread, they didn't just talk about coming to, hey, come over to the house, let's have pizza and watch the Bucks game. Well, you don't want to be disappointed like that anyways, but um, I know I'm a, I'm a long-standing Buck fan, and we're, we're cautiously optimistic, okay? That's the best we can do. We have had our hopes dashed for so many years in a row that now we're like, just wait and see. Brady or not, we're just going to wait and see. Okay, different subject. So in the early church, gathering together and breaking bread was huge for them. They did it consistently. We know that. This was an important aspect. I want to submit to you that this communion is living and that there is something that Jesus, every time we partake, wants to impart to us. He's literally sharing with us the power of His death and the power of His blood and the power of His victory over all darkness. He's sharing with us, and it gets imparted to us when we partake by faith. Now, there's no magic in the little cup here. And in the little thing, I don't like these. My fingernails aren't long enough. I can hardly get that top little thing off there. I always have to give it to my wife. It's like, could you get that off? Like, I can't get down to the wafer. So there's no magic in there. There's no magic if you actually have a chalice with wine and you have a loaf of bread and break it off, which is cool because I think that demonstrates doing it as one rather than everybody has to look up. Never mind. That's not important. The power is when we connect our hearts rightly and we see in wonder what we're partaking of. He is consistently. So baptism is one time. But that's your entry. That's your door into the kingdom. Jesus is now my new Lord and Master. I have a new life. The old life is gone. That old twisted self that I was when he rescued me is gone and is under the water now. I had this experience after I came to the Lord. He drew me to himself just a sovereign way. You've heard the story. I came back, and um, I saw a girl. This was Connecticut. Went back to North Carolina where I previously lived, and uh, I saw a girl there that I had known in school. And the first thing, this hadn't been too long, really. I was just getting my life straight. Everything wasn't in line and perfect, but the first thing that she said to me when we got together and started talking, she said, you're different. I said, really? How am I? She goes, I, I don't know exactly how to say it, but you're, you're not the same person. I was like, yes, yes, something happened inside. So eating the bread, drinking the cup is a joining together. It's a oneness with Jesus and the power of what he accomplished on the cross, which is phenomenal. That's why Paul says in this passage that we just read, as often as you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Proclaiming the Lord's death. We are preaching a sermon when we're receiving communion. This is what Jesus accomplished. And so I, I did this, and I'm gonna, I think I'm going to go here now. I'm not bound by the clock. Are you? Um. I went through the book of Revelation because here's, here's my conviction. Just like with worship, heaven gets it right 
We don't always get it right, but heaven gets it right. So I want to see how heaven views the blood of Jesus and how they respond to it and how they react to it there because that's how I want to react. We're praying, let it be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so how does, how does heaven react to the blood of Jesus? Look at this passage, and I want to make a point. This is Revelation chapter 5. Lisa read this this morning. We could read it over and over again and, and be blessed all day long. But let's, let's just read. I want to take one verse. It's, it's Revelation um, 5 verse 6. The Lamb comes on the scene, and it says, And I saw between the throne and with the four living creatures and the elders a Lamb. So when you get into the book of Revelation, after you get into the heavenly scene, which starts in chapter 4, Jesus is almost always referred to as the Lamb. 29 times in the book of Revelation. That's what he's called over and over again. And he's called that into the new Jerusalem. It's not just, I mean, it's forever. He's the Lamb. Why is that? What does Lamb signify? It's Jesus in his death and what he accomplished by shedding his blood and his body being broken. That's what it is. And he is the focal point of worship in heaven. But look at this in verse 6. This is what I want to bring out because often... Um, we tend to have a view when he says, do this in remembrance of me. What do you think of when, you, when he says that, do this in remembrance of me? For, I think for a lot of us, the idea is we have a nostalgic feeling and we think about Jesus being on the cross and the nails going in and, and we're doing it in remembrance of him, like we're kind of trying to do a mental remembrance there. But I want to submit to you that that's not the kind of remembrance that he's talking about at all. So, so verse 6, and here's the point. Verse 6 of chapter 5, I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. Now, this is a little bit technical, but this is, this is powerful. The lamb is standing as if having been slain. And if you read other translations, they're going, he has upon himself the fresh marks of slaughter. Here's a lamb. How do they slaughter a lamb? They cut his throat. They bleed him out. He's, he's standing there. He looks like he should be dead. He's been slaughtered, and they can see the marks of slaughter. The fresh blood is there. The fresh marks of slaughter are on the lamb. He's standing in the center of the throne. What does that tell me? It tells me that in heaven, the death of Jesus and what he accomplished is not a historic great fact something that happened. It's an ever-living, ever-present reality that still is as powerful now as it was the moment that he gave his life and said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. In heaven, they're still rejoicing at the glory of the Lamb because they can still see the freshness of the marks of slaughter upon him as the Lamb. It's forever. It's eternal. Hebrews 13 talks about the blood of the eternal covenant. It's timeless. He wants us to connect with it over and 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 over because we need the flow of his life. How many know that you need the flow of his life into your every day? When you get up out of bed, the first thing if you're like me, you go, oh, God, come, live through me this day. This is what 
this ordinance is. We're actually, by faith, connecting with him. It's different than having a nostalgic feeling, thinking about the Mel Gibson movie. Okay, that was powerful, but that's, that's not what this is. The remembrance here. So I have lots of Bible translations. I love Bible translations and the Word of God. One of the ones that I have is called the Translator's New Testament. And it was written by the British and Foreign Bible Society to give to their missionaries to help them to translate into other languages accurately. And so they have notes in there. It's a translation as well. And their note on this verse in verse 24 where it says, Do this in remembrance of me is, is particularly powerful, and I want you to hear it, of what this remembrance is. This is what it says. In order to translate this word adequately, the translator should be aware of the Old Testament background to the Greek term used here for remembrance. In the Old Testament, remembrance is not simply a mental activity. It involves identifying oneself in continuing action with what it, the remembered person or object is represented. So in this context, the feast of bread and wine is not only an act of remembrance of Jesus and his sacrificial act, but it recalls him so vividly to memory that he is felt to be actually present. There's something that happens. Jesus said in John chapter 6, this is verse 35, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. Then he uses this analogy. Um, he goes down into verse 51. I'm the living bread which came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I give for the world is my flesh. And then it says, verse 53, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So he starts out in verse 35 going, you need to come to me, and you need to believe in me that I'm that bread. And then he goes to explaining it, which is where it gets really controversial if you're telling it to Jews in the synagogue, which is what he was. You, you, you really shouldn't talk to Jews about cannibalism when you're preaching. They, they, they don't go for that. And they actually threw him out, and his disciples were totally bewildered because they knew that now Jesus' aspirations to be president were over. You, you don't talk about cannibalism, but Jesus did. Why? Because when he's describing believing, we go, oh, yeah, yeah, I believe that. But, but believing to Jesus in his blood and in his body is different than just going, yeah, 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 I know that. I've read that. I've sung that. It's actually doing what we do when we eat. What do you do when you eat? You take the food, you smell it. Usually, you already have smelled it. You put it in your mouth. You taste it. You savor it. You go, mmm, that's amazing. You chew it. You swallow it. You digest it. And what happens is that it becomes part of who you are. That's what he calls us to do in communion. Take my blood, what I've done. It's okay to remember the person that you were. 
it's okay to remember. I, I don't know if you're like me, like I think back on my life before Christ apprehended me and I just shudder sometimes. I just go, oh my gosh, I wouldn't, know. I wouldn't want anybody to know all that stuff. I was so crooked and twisted and perverted and messed up. But I think about that. My soul was like a pretzel. And Jesus goes, I know what it is. Bring it to me. Put it under the blood. Watch what happens when my blood transforms it. All that twistedness in my soul just began to, it didn't happen overnight. Process isn't done yet. The power of his blood to transform and to change. You know what? This gives me hope because people, I don't know about you, but there's still areas inside of me that are screwed up. Anybody else in the room? Now come and pray for me then. Put your hand on my head. They're not, they're not quite straight. There's some stuff in me that's crooked. It's not quite right. And, and I can go with hope because I know what he did to that pretzel. And I can go with hope. And when I partake of the Lord's Supper, I'm going, yes, I received the power of your blood to untwist the screwed up, twisted mess that I was. And that stuff that remains still in me that needs to be corrected and straightened. Lord, I can trust you that you're going to do it. Do it again. This is what we're saying when we take communion. Do it again, Jesus. Come on, do it again. And he's like, I thought you'd never ask. Bring it to me. Bring it to me. Do this in remembrance of me. It's not like a childhood memory that we're nostalgic about. It is actually eating. When we're proclaiming his death, we're eating and we're drinking. That's a picture of what true faith is. We're partaking with our heart of the power of what he's done. In heaven, the sacrifice of Jesus is not just a great past event. It's an ever-living, ever-powerful reality. So I want to just real quick go through my survey of the book of Revelation. I've just pulled out seven points. You could do a lot more than that, but, but just hear me. Can, can, you, can you just hear and embrace? Would you just savor the truth that I'm about to read from the book of Revelation? This is heaven's viewpoint of the power and the beauty of the blood of Jesus and of what he accomplished. Would you just savor in your heart with me as I read these scriptures and the points that I put with them? So I'm going to start reading um, in the beginning of the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 5. Below, I'm sorry. Yeah, 1, verse 5. It says this, From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. Our release, our redemption, and our purity is based upon the power of the blood. It is the fullest expression of his love for us because he purchased us, he forgave us, he washed us, he redeemed us. You know that word redemption? Do you know what the idea behind redemption is? It means we were slaves. 
in the slave market, and Jesus gave his life, ransomed us to buy us for himself. Now, there's no question who owns us. You're not your own, right? So we don't tell Jesus we're not going to do what he says. We tell him, yes, sir. I tell people, Jesus doesn't come into your life to be an honored guest. He comes to take over. That's what he comes for. He comes to take over. Because look, how good were you at running your life? You were just as bad as me. You shipwrecked that thing over and over again. And everybody around you knew what a dork you were. You just didn't see it yourself when you looked in the mirror. I shudder. I literally shudder so many times thinking about some of the stuff that I said and did. And I'm like, thank God for the blood. He's washed it away. They've washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb, 714 says. Now I'm going back to chapter 5, and I want to make this point. Heaven's worship revolves around the Lamb and His sacrifice. Notice how His worthiness is connected to His sacrifice. Verse 9, they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals because you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. He purchased us, but he's worthy because he overcame. That's in the songs in heaven. You're worthy because you overcame. You gave your life. You did not deter from the mission that you had from the Father and gave your life. Heaven's worship will forever revolve around the lamb and his sacrifice. 510, next verse, says, You have made them to be kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Our position, our privileges, and our identity in God's kingdom come only through the blood of Jesus. The reason you're a king and priest is not because you're awesome. The reason that you're a king and priest and you have the authority of Jesus Christ is not because you're awesome. The reason that you're a son of God is not because you're awesome. We, we don't like this. This never, never preaches good. Never does it. Because we want to believe that everything that we have and God's given us is because he saw them and go, oh, you're so awesome. I'm going to make you my son. I'm going to make you a priest. I'm going to make you a king. You're just awesome. But it's, it's not the truth. We were screwed up rebels against God. Everything that we did shouted to God, you're nothing, you're nothing. I'm everything. And he still came down and rescued us. <laughs> Listen, I, I preached this one time. And in order to see the gospel, you have to see how bad and how dark you were before he rescued you. Listen, this is the truth. You look at the most wicked and evil people and the things that they do in the world, and the reality is, apart from Jesus Christ, you could do those same things. Go on. Now, I know everybody in this room like recoils from that. No, I couldn't. Yes, I could be an Al-Qaeda assassin with a sword chopping people's heads off if the circumstances were right in my life. I could be that. I know it doesn't preach good. It's the truth. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who seeks after God. There is none. Their mouth is an open pit, constantly speaking. Read Romans chapter 3 again on Paul's assessment of humanity without Christ. 
It's startling. It's dark. And I can, I can own, it gives me such great joy. Like, that was me. That was me. I could have been Adolf Hitler if he hadn't rescued me. I could have been Al-Qaeda if he hadn't rescued me. Absolutely. That's the gospel. You, you, you can have, think that you're self-righteous like Paul, and he thought that he was serving God by killing Christians. The blindness is phenomenal, even in somebody that had Scripture memorized up and down, back and forth like Paul. Think about the blindness there. This is part of recognizing the mercy that's been given to us. Oh, my goodness. Everything about our life shouted to God, you are nothing. I am everything. What does this make me do? This is not a downer. This is not a beat down. This is reality of what we've been rescued from. My goodness. Lord, you took the biggest rebel. That's what Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He goes, look, if he can rescue me, he can rescue anybody. I was the chief of sinners. I persecuted the church. I murdered Christians. I did it ignorantly and unbelief because I was blind. The more we can own what we were before we came to Christ, the more we can rejoice and share in the life that he's offered to us and poured out. How beautiful. What a testimony it is to take the most wretched. Transform them. There's people that God saved that you would hate and despise. Heard a story of a guy. He was an alcoholic, a drug addict. He went down to the altar. He knew the gospel. He heard it over and over again. Came down to the altar a total of 26 times. When his daughter was little, she had a disease that she needed medicine for in order to keep her healthy and alive. And on one of his drinking binges, he took the money for her medicine and spent it on alcohol, and his daughter died. When she was in the casket and he went in to visit her, he took the shoes off of her body to sell them to get more alcohol. The 27th time he heard the call. He came down. He bowed before the Lamb. He said, I am self-centered person ever. Can you take me and do anything with me? And Jesus said, absolutely. He rescued that man. He lived the rest of his life for God and preached the gospel until he died. Come on! There's power in the blood of Jesus. I don't care how many times there's been false starts. When there is a connection with the blood of Jesus, there is transformation that is undeniable. And your little thing and mine, 
We want people to talk us out of and counsel us out of our stuff. I know that. And I think there's value in counseling. I'm not throwing that under the bus. But I'm saying the key to all of our deliverances is in the blood of Jesus. And what real counseling does is it teaches us how to get connected to the power of what he's already accomplished. Hebrews 10, 14, by the power of one sacrifice, this is what the Bible says, read it for yourself, he has forever perfected those who are being sanctified. That's you and me. What does that tell me? That what he poured out on the cross in his blood and his broken body had sufficient power to deliver you from all of your junk forever. And to present us before him, a spotless bride with no spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Hallelujah. Come on. This is what it means to have communion with the Lamb of God. You can't actively participate with the Lamb in His sacrifice and stay the same. It's not possible. We're all at different levels of what we need. Some of us have been untwisted a lot, <laughs> but there's still stuff in us. Like the, the ones in here, you, you can ask them, who have walked with Jesus the longest will still tell you, oh yeah, I still need the blood every day. I need it every single day. I need the power of his sacrifice to work in me every single day. Eat this bread. Drink this cup. Savor it. Take it in. Swallow it. Let Digest it. Let it transform everything about you. We're proclaiming the Lord's death. I better get through this list, right? Chapter 12, verse 11, Revelation. This is number four of my seven list. 12, verse 11. You know this verse. You can quote it with me if you want. They overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when they faced death. Here you have people, well, we don't usually quote the third part of that because we don't like to put that in there. This is America after all. But the reality is when you believe in something so much that you'll die for it, that's when it controls your life and his power is released inside of you. The blood of the lamb the word of their testimony. They connected to it. They owned it. The blood of the lamb is my hope. And if it means that I am going to die physically, so be it. It's a truth that's worth dying for. In, in the American church, I can say this. Like this, you, you have to understand my heart. This is not a beatdown. This is conversations that I have in the mirror every day. In the American church, we are so surrounded by comfort, and we're so brainwashed with the messages of our culture that it's all about us, and that we should never suffer, and that we should never have hard times, and we should never, any of that stuff. 
that it's difficult for us. We have to fight against it. It's really okay to suffer for Jesus. The New Testament, there's at least 50. This is a different subject. Now I'm rambling. There's at least 50 verses in the New Testament that directly talk about the calling of believers to suffer for Jesus. It's really okay. It's a small thing if you know where you're going to end up, where your life is going, and who is working in you. We're in communion with the Lamb of God. The power of His sacrifice is working inside of us. You just need to eat. Listen to me. You just need to eat. You need to drink. And its power gets released inside of you. They overcame him. So all victory over the enemy comes through the cross. Is it any wonder that Paul, the apostle, says in Galatians 6.14, such a phenomenal statement. God forbid. Let it never happen. No, God, don't let this ever happen to me. This is the worst possible thing I could conceive of. God forbid that I should ever boast in anything except for the cross of Christ, through whom I was crucified to the world and the world to me. Our boast is our passion. It's our obsession. It is the sacrifice of Jesus. Can we say to Paul, this is our obsession? This is our center that we revolve around. 19, verse 7 through 9. It is the source, his blood, his body, his sacrifice is the source and sustaining passion of depth of relationship with God for eternity. We are going to marry God. Let us rejoice. Verse, uh, chapter 19, verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the lamb. We're going we're to marry the lamb, the, the one who sacrificed his life, poured out his blood, and broke his body. The marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Can, can you feel the power of the fact that you, if you are born again and you know the Lord Jesus, you have an invitation to marry God. I know. It's crazy. That's because of the blood. That's because of what he accomplished. And then 21, 23. There's just two more here. Then I'm going to go to the second part. 21, 23. The city. This is in the New Jerusalem now. Get the picture. This is in the New Jerusalem that comes down. This is heaven on the earth. The city has no need of sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. 
Its lamp is the Lamb. The glory and the radiance and the splendor that comes out of the sacrifice of Jesus illuminates everything and makes all human light look dark. That's what's going to illuminate the new Jerusalem. When, when we're there and we see the light radiating from every direction, we're going to know the source of it. The Lamb and His sacrifice is radiating to illuminate the whole city. He's the Lamb. He's also the temple. In the next verse, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. You won't have to go somewhere to meet with the full. We talk about encounter. We talk about encountering God and, and, and all that's marvelous. But there's no encounter like when the Lamb Himself is the temple and you come into His immediate and the fullness of His presence. To Him who overcomes. This is a promise. In Revelation chapter 3, to him who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. You're not getting it. Like A pillar is, doesn't have wheels on it now. It's, it's, it's planted. It's solid. It's a supporting part of the temple. You're going to be a pillar if you overcome in the temple of God. But wait, there is no temple. The Lamb is the temple. What does that mean? We're going to be planted in the closest possible proximity to the Lamb of God forever in eternity. Talk about encounter. You don't have to come to a conference to get an encounter. You're going to live and encounter the fullness of God's glorious expression every moment of your life throughout eternity. We've only had little bits of taste here. You get that, right? He touches us. We get a little taste. We get a little breath. But because of what he did, the lamb is the temple now. And in that place, we come in through the blood of Jesus. The sacrifice of Jesus is so powerful that throughout all of eternity, us who were knuckleheaded, rebellious people against God. Some of us were more sophisticated knuckleheads than others. But we were all knuckleheads and rebels. C.S. Lewis says, when we came to God, we didn't come to have a bad person made into a good person. We came as rebels to lay down our arms. And that's exactly what we did. We were all rebels. I know we don't see ourselves that way. That's part of the reason why the gospel doesn't blow our mind. The gospel should be like an atomic explosion, and we fall on the ground and go, what in the world just happened? should strike us that way. And then verse 27 of, of this chapter of 21, this is, this is glorious and it also is sobering. Nothing unclean, no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into the city, only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. If your name's written in his book, that means that you've been washed with His blood. You've embraced. You've tasted. You have eaten. And this is what we do when we have communion. We eat and drink over and over and over and over. How many think you have enough? You have enough of the life of God. You're like, I don't need that anymore. 
I, I just have enough. I've, I've really had enough. Like, I don't know how many times I've had communion. Like, I've read this passage so many times, read Revelation 4 and 5 times. No. One more time. This is what the early church did. When they came together, they go, let's not just gather around some kind of a thing that has no value. Let's rally around, and when we get together and we eat, let's include in that eating, we're going to remember the Lamb who poured out His blood and washed us from all of our sins and cleansed us with His broken body. He took our sins in His own body on the tree. He bore our pains and our sickness in His body. We're going to get together and celebrate and build our fellowship around Him. How novel would that be? So many times in the church, world, we talk about fellowship and we think about a hot dog roast with potato salad and drinks and whatever. And it's not that. Fellowship is a sharing. It's communion with the life of the Son of God who is the Lamb. And we share with each other our own lives. That's why the majority of the times where koinonia is used in the New Testament, it talks about believers giving money to other believers. I know it's un-American for a preacher to talk about money. I'll talk about it until the cows come home. Because I can tell you this, whoever has your money has your heart. That's why Jesus wants it. Do you know why he sat at the temple and sat there and watched people put their offering into it so close that he could see what they put in? Jesus, what are you doing? That's personal. Exactly. Because I want to see where the heart is. This little woman who gave this half cent put in more than all of the others because she gave all of her living. Where your treasure is, what? Is your heart in heaven? Well, you can probably tell by looking at your checkbook. How are you guys doing? I told you I was going to start yelling, okay? I gave you a fair warning. This stuff fires me up. I know where I came from, and I know what I could and would be right now if he had not rescued me. This gets me fired up. Jesus. All right. Let me, let me finish out here with this other part. It's communion with Jesus and his sacrifice with us. That's powerful enough. But I want to show you. Go back to 1 Corinthians 11. And we'll finish up here. Guys, can you give me just a few more minutes? This is important. Hey, David, somebody got any water? Can somebody grab me a bottle? All this yelling makes you dry, you know? So thank you. First Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to start reading this time. We read the passage that we all know and we've all heard during communion services, some of us hundreds of times. I know for me that's true, hundreds of times. But let's start and get the context of this because this is hugely important. And what I, the point that I want to make here, and I want you to see, 
is that Paul is saying that communion is not just the individual believer connecting with the sacrifice of Jesus. It's us as a body rightly relating and connecting to each other as well. Those two aspects of communion. This is really weighty. Verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 11, look at it. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better but for the worse. He's talking about coming together for the Lord's Supper. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. So Paul's dealing again in, with the Corinthians about their division, which are born out of their own spiritual pride and insecurity so much. He's going after them now for the divisions. For there must also be factions, verse 19, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. He's going, you guys think you're coming together and having the Lord's Supper, and I'm telling you right now that's not what you're doing. Because the very thing that you're doing is actually a contradiction to the, what the Lord's Supper means. And that is the whole issue of division. This is hard for us in America because we are so stinking individualistic. We want our space. We don't want you to invade it. We're easily offended. Come on, am I telling the truth or not? We're individualistic radically, but the Bible does not let us get away with that. If we're going to believe the Bible, we, don't, we can't get away with our individualism anymore. Now we're going to have to go, okay, well, whatever. It's not just about me. Now it's about a whole community that God has brought together, and I'm part of that community. And I will not and cannot do anything to divide it. So here's what's happening. For in, for in your eating, verse 21... Each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Don't you have houses in which to eat and drink? Or notice this word. Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. So backstory, in Corinth, like in most uh, Roman uh, cities, there's a big disparity between the wealthy and between the poor. There's hardly any middle class. So you got wealthy people that are coming there, and they've got the whole pickup truck loaded up with food and goodies and wine, and they're coming to the, the feast to get there and eat, and they get there and they start eating first, and they're going to fill themselves up. And here the poor come in, and they don't have food. They don't have enough to eat. But the rich are over there going, oh, bless you, brother. Bless you, man. How are you, how are you doing? How's it going today? And Paul's like, when, when you do that, and you, you're not sharing the thing that you have with those who don't. You're despising the church. That goes right into verse 23. For, because I receive from the Lord. Here, here's the revelation of this passage. What Paul is talking about when he's giving instruction on the Lord's Supper, he's not talking about how to have a good worship service. He's talking about, you guys are divided, and because of that, you don't even understand what the Lord's Supper is even about. You missed the whole point. Because at the core and the heart of the Lord's Supper is that we are bound together in one body. We have a common life and a common blood, and the bread that was broken is one body, and we are that body. Our individualism... In order to be the people of God, can I, can I just tell you, this is true. Our individualism has to die. 
it has to die. The stuff that I like, the stuff that I want, my little space, I get that has to die. This is not a popular message. This will never, ever preach in Western countries at all. But it's the Bible. So let me read on down through here, and I'm going to show you. This is super weighty. For I received from the Lord. So let's skip down to verse 26, because that's where we left off last time. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He's coming back again. This is a whole continuum. The lamb is the victor. He's conquered through his sacrifice. Verse 27, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. I heard my whole Christian life, and every time it's ever been talked about, that what that means is that if you eat in an unworthy manner, that means you come with bad attitudes in your heart. Maybe you come with unforgiveness in your heart. Maybe you come with sin that you've partaken of during the week. Um, and th- and then that way you can partake in an, in an unworthy manner. And that's not what Paul's saying. I'm not saying those things are good or that we shouldn't cleanse those things out of our life. But he's talking about this whole issue of how we treat other believers in the body as being when we come and we don't treat each other with love. Paul's teaching about the Lord's Supper. He's calling out their lovelessness is what he's doing. That's when we partake in an unworthy manner. Then we're guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. I want you to follow this through because I'm not making this up. Verse 28, but a man must examine himself. And in so doing, he's to eat the bread and drink the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the what? The body rightly. He's talking about the body of believers. For this reason, and he's going to make that really plain here. Follow me. For this reason, many of you are weak and sick and a number sleep. Why, Paul? Because when they come together, then they, you know, they've watched too much Netflix that week, and then they didn't rightly discern, and so, no. It's because there's divisions, and they're not rightly valuing the other members of the body, their brothers and sisters, as being purchased with the same precious blood that they were purchased with, and treating them in that way, and being willing to take their individualistic stuff and pour it out to bless somebody else who doesn't have. That's what he's saying. We eat and drink judgment to ourselves if we don't judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep, but if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. 32, but when we are judged, we're disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. I know people that God has taken out because they got so crosswise with other believers that he actually took them out. One brother I knew very well, a good friend of mine, he's in his 40s. And he, one night, he just died for no reason. So then, verse 33, my brothers, when you come together to eat, look, here it is. This is the same thought. When you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. He's talking about that whole situation. You despise the church of God. Your individualistic way that you have in not valuing the other members of the body rightly, 
Jesus is not okay with that because he purchased men from every tribe and tongue and kindred and nation for God with his blood. This is super sobering. The judgment in this passage of people being sick and weak and dying early is a judgment because they didn't rightly relate to other members of the body. That's what it is. Dude, that's super sobering. Here's a quote by Andrew Murray, one of my favorites. Many believers have sought for a closer connection with the Lord and not found it because they want the head alone without the body. Many believers have sought for a closer connection with the Lord and not found it because they want the head alone without the body. Not possible. Can I tell you, in every church and in every life, Jesus sends people to you to test you. He sends himself. Lord, when did we feed you? When did we? It was the least of these. It's, it's the odd ones. It's the one that everybody else rolls their eyes at and goes, there they are again. <laughs> Jesus loves to come in that disguise and go, hey, what are you going to do with me? And we, a lot of times, go, that's, that's, that's weird. That's awkward. And it's our test. It's our test as a church. Paul said that the church should value the weaker members just as much as the strong. And those that seem to have no real purpose, they're not adding to the thing. He goes, we give the more abundant honors to the unseemly members. That means they're not awesome stage people. But they're the test of the faithfulness of every church. Jesus sends them. What are we going to do with them? We're going to embrace them. Go, you know what? You were purchased with the same blood that this little twisted 15-year-old was purchased with. And you're my brother and my sister. And I'm going to love you well by the grace of God. Do you know the context of Jesus saying, a new commandment I give you in John 13 is at this supper Judas had just gone, gotten up from the table to go out and to betray Jesus. And Jesus says right after Judas walks out the door and it closes, a new commandment I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. This is how the world is going to know that you are my disciple because of the love that you have for one another. Right in the middle of the Passover Seder when they had eaten the lamb, they had celebrated with the wine, God's deliverance. Jesus says, my betrayer just left. I want you to know the love commandment. It's new. And it's what's going to tell people that you're mine. And, and I have to ask the question. Again, people, please know that these are conversations I have in my mirror. I'm not, I don't have any fingers to point. I really don't. But how, how many people in your life and mine would say, in looking at the way that we treat a 
other believers. Oh, my God. That is so amazing. They must be followers of Jesus. It's a real question. John 17, I'll finish with this, and then we're going to receive communion. Thank you guys for bearing with me. John 17, verse 19. For their sakes, Jesus is praying now. This is right before he walks out to go to Gethsemane. John 17, for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. He's talking about setting himself apart to fulfill the mission and to give his life on the cross. I'm sanctifying myself so that they themselves may also be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, <coughs> excuse me, but for those also who believe in me through their word. That includes you and me. That they may all, 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 that they may all, not just the beautiful people, not just the green berets, not just the awesomely dedicated, not just the ones who have a newsletter and a book, but that they may all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Is it possible that one of the reasons that we're not more effective in evangelism is because we're not doing this? Jesus said, this is how the world's going to know, by the way that you are one with each other, love each other. Is it possible that if we would get this rightly aligned, and we're going there, we're going somewhere, I'm going there with you guys, like I love running with you, please hear this. This is not a beatdown. This is not a finger pointing. This is, a, this is an urgency of imploring us. Come on. We're going in the right direction. We've got to keep moving in this direction. Is it possible that if we can get this right and actually love each other the way that Jesus died to purchase, that he will cause his name to be made great in our society? that he will draw people to himself. You know, in the book of Acts, it's the most amazing thing. In chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira fall dead in the church service on Sunday morning. Take him out and bury him. Ananias lied to the Holy Ghost. That doesn't happen here. We don't, we're people of truth here. We don't, we're not people of image. We're people of truth. Dead. Out. Wife comes in. Did you sell the property for such and such an amount? Yep. Dead. Out. Carried her out. Buried her beside her husband. I may believe that's a good church growth strategy. <laughs> here's, here's the thing. It was. It, it was. Because the next verses say, and great fear was upon them all, and no one dared to join themselves to them. I guess not. I think everybody after this going, oh my goodness, Lord, is there anything that I've said that wasn't exactly true? I mean, 100% like, well, oh, um, you're scouring your brain. Like, that would be normal. No one dared to join themselves to them. But then it says, but the Lord was adding to them multitudes of men and women day after day. 
How is that possible? Because when the atmosphere gets right, God says, look, I appreciate all your efforts, but watch what I can do. Come on, we want to evangelize the world. Jesus said, we got to get this right. This is the message of the Lord's Supper. This is what we are saying when we are proclaiming his death. Yes, we're connected to his life. We can rejoice forever and will. But we're also connected to each other. We have to get that right.